Hey, this is Brian Golden. I am the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast and thank you for taking the time to listen. And I just want to let you know if you are in the greater Tampa Bay area, we would love to have you join us at one of our gatherings. And here's the thing about Centerpoint. Our vision is really simple. We want to be an alternative to church as usual for all people. And that just means we want this to be a safe place that welcomes everybody, doesn't matter what your background is or really where you're at on your faith journey. And so if you want any more information about our gatherings, go to our website at centerpointfl.org. And then most importantly, whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus or you're just in that place of investigating faith, I really hope today's message encourages you and really helps you to find life and freedom in Jesus. Hey, welcome to Unfiltered Talk Podcast. This is episode six. My name is Bryant. I'm the host of this podcast, also the pastor of Centerpoint Church and the host of Unfiltered Radio, which is on weekdays on 570, 910 a.m. Uh, you can check out more information at unfilteredradio.com or if you want more information about Centerpoint at centerpointfl.org. So like I said, we're in episode six. Basically, the podcast is talking about life, leadership, culture, and last couple of weeks, we've dealt with some big topics around racial injustice and following Jesus and what that looks like. This week, we're going to take a little bit of a turn and talk about one of the most frequently asked questions that I get, specifically around women and women in leadership, preaching, uh, teaching, and um, just how we should think about that, what the biblical evidence is for or against that. But I get that question a ton. And so to help me um, with this podcast, we're going to switch it up. I've got Grace Hudson with me, who is my executive assistant and safe to say pretty much runs my life, collaborates with my wife to run my life and schedule and um, but does so much uh, that is behind the scenes in terms of leadership and leading events and um, so much of what happens at Centerpoint uh, centers around her at some level. There's so much that she does behind the scenes um, where I'm just like, hey, can you just go lead this? And she does it. So um grace welcome to unfiltered talk podcast and i'm actually going to kind of like hand it to you to help direct this conversation a little bit yeah sure i know when you told a few of us that you're wanting to do this i kind of jumped the gun i was like can i please do this with you and it's because like i'm really passionate about women in leadership yeah that's one of the main reasons that drew me to center point was the way you and you know your wife even encourage other women to lead and like that's such mm. a aspect for you so that's why I love it and so yeah you were all about it like you were a quick volunteer so but this will be good I actually want to have this conversation with you so yeah um I could just kick things off I actually reached out to I told you earlier I reached out to a couple friends of mine who are also passionate about this subject because I just want to hear from like people a little more removed what they think about women in leadership in church yeah, and one yeah. of them, um brought up a really good quote from Rachel Evans that I think would be a good like place to start the conversation from okay. a biblical standpoint. So I'm just going to read it from my phone. I'm not, you know, super smart and have it memorized. Um, it says, if, it, if man's rule over women is introduced in the context of a curse, why would Christians still enforce patriarchy when Christ's death and resurrection have inaugurated a new creation in which the heretical barriers between Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female are broken down and redeemed? And we're like, we're diving right in yeah, with that. Okay. So yeah, so yeah. So I was gonna say, I think you need to read it one more time for the benefit of everybody either watching or There's listening no via podcast. So yeah. So, so if you're listening via podcast right now, like maybe move this down to half speed. <laughs> Take this in. So it says, if man's rule over woman is introduced in the context of a curse, which I think it's talking about like Old Testament, why would Christians still enforce patriarchy when Christ's death and resurrection have inaugurated a new creation in which the heretical barriers between Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female are broken down and redeemed? So she's yeah. talking how basically the cross changed everything and Jesus changed everything, not only in terms of different barriers like Jew and Greek, slave and freedom, but also the the curse between man and woman and you know the woman's under the man and that yeah. changed at the cross yeah about. yeah so that's um and so the verse that's quoted a lot of people argue that's in the new testament verse about no jew or greek slave free male female is in the context of like equality and made in the image of god and there can be some argument made for that but i think it's bigger than that and you see that through multiple writings in the new testament 
in Acts, the ministry of Paul, what Jesus introduced. But I'm gonna I'm gonna back into that. So I'm gonna like deal with the first part of it where it talks about where um, we pick it up in Genesis and the whole you know man ruling over uh, woman, and then basically we take a whole bunch of Old Testament stuff and then we try to cram it into the New Testament, and then we come up with this theology of um, how we think you know male female relationships should work specifically in the context of the church. And I would just say that's what we're going to deal with. So specifically like women preaching, teaching, leading within the church. There's a ton we could discuss about this, but I think that's kind of where we're going to narrow the focus. So here's what I would say real quick, going back all the way to Genesis and creation, because this helps set it up. I don't want to get too bogged down. So you have to move me along, Grace, a little bit or get too like theological or Bible study. But like, as far as the context, I think is really important. If you go all the way back to creation, like it, it talks about the fact that male and female were created um, in the image of God. And um, it uses a generic term, actually, in Genesis, really, that really just means human person. So, I mean, I think most of us listening or watching believe that, like male, female, created as um, image bearers of the God of the universe. But then it talks about the fact that uh, men and women together without distinction, I think it's really important in Genesis 126, 128, they were actually tasked with ruling over and leading the Garden of Eden. So that was uh, male and female, here's your role in the Garden of Eden, um, and no distinction was made, which is really, really important. And then um, Genesis 2.18 is a lot of times where we want to um, kind of pull out where it talks about uh, the female being a, a helper to the male. Here's what's really interesting about that. That's used 29 times in the Old Testament, that word helper. In every time other than one, there's one time where it refers to King David. 20, but 29 times it refers to God throughout the Old Testament. That, whole, that word that's used there of helper that's used in terms of the woman being a helper to the male. All that to say, the word helper there, as you look at the entirety of the Old Testament, really is not so much an expression of submission and service to man. I think it's better interpreted as women being a helper that serves God with man. Yeah. And I get that from the, again, the way it's used 29 other times throughout the Old Testament and the fact that, again, male and female were given the task of leading and ruling the Garden of Eden. So that's really important just to pause on that because that's God's original creation for humanity or God's original plan for creation of humanity before sin sin enters the world so there's a garden of eden pre-sin and then there's post-sin where everything gets jacked up and it's not what god originally intended but if you were just to pause here this was god's original intention back when everything was perfect before sin entered the world that's huge yeah so then you got to go to genesis 3 and this is kind of the point that your quote's getting to is that sin enters the world um by the way, normally we like to look at it as the whole tree of the knowledge of good and evil and whatever the heck they were doing, eating pears or apples or whatever, and sin enters the world, and, and we love to distinguish, like, the female, you know, eats of the tree, and then the male. Genesis 3, 6 actually makes it really clear that the women gave some of the fruit to her husband, this is a really important clause, who was with her, and he ate. So both parties were together in disobedience to God. So they were together ruling the garden. Then they were together and in introducing sin enter the garden that jacked up all of humanity. And so here's the point that I want to make that goes to what you were saying in Genesis 3, 14 to 19, not to get too Bible study-ish, but I think it's really important. What you find next is descriptive, not prescriptive, which is really, really important. So there's a difference between going, this is prescriptive in terms of how God desires for humanity to work. And then there's the this is descriptive um, in terms of how it will work because of sin entering the world. And now we are waiting for a day where things are going to be re redeemed and returned to God's original design. So all that to say, where it talks about the, the future realities of supremacy and subjective relationship between male and female, um, these are, I would say, are statements that are not creation mandates. Instead, they're basically prescriptive about the struggle that's going to ensue because sin entered the world. This was not God's original design, 
but basically God's original design was mutuality, partnership, equality, and now all of that's marred by sin. And so really it's, it's just, here's the descriptive future realities that are going to play out in relationships, specifically right now with male and female, because of sin entering the world. That is really, really important. So that's the, here's what God created. Here's how sin jacked it up. Here's how we're going to struggle for all of the rest of humanity, but it's not God's plan and it was not God's original design. Um, Then real quick, then you have all of the Old Testament stuff and then I'll move quickly into the New Testament where you've got the nation of Israel, you got you have God's covenant to Israel, um, you have a bunch of really, um, and it, this is, it, it just is what it is, very archaic, the way the nations um, coexisted, war, how they viewed women, I mean, it was, it was an incredibly archaic culture, God worked within that cultural context, set up his covenant and his promises to Israel, and then Jesus shows up in the New Testament, he ends that covenant, he ends that relationship. Now, all of the Old Testament is inspired, but it is history about how God did what God was going to do, which was ultimately lead the way from Messiah to enter center stage in the New Testament in Matthew. And he introduces a new idea, a new ethic, a new command that would change everything. And literally, I was going to go through this, but I don't think I'll have time. Uh, literally, it, it makes the Old Testament um, commands and covenant completely obsolete not that it wasn't inspired not that it wasn't significant Uh, i've heard it described it was the cocoon to introduce what god ultimately was going to do in creation through jesus so i say all that to say this and my little girl's trying to look on right here while i'm on a a podcast here real quick okay okay I'll, i'll be with you in just a second i will i will in just a second okay so this is just real. My girl's asking me to go kill a bug real quick. So I'll get to that in a few minutes. Um, so that's super important because what we try to do is we, we take a lot of what we see in the Old Testament that was specific promises and mandates to the nation of Israel. And then we try to mix them in with some of the Jesus teaching or the teaching of Paul in the New Testament. And we come up with this really weird theology of mix and match that allows us in a lot of, well, let me just relate this to women that has allowed us for a lot of years to not give women a role in the church um to create this really weird um almost condescending submission culture um among male and female and misinterpreting even paul's words about women submitting to and and it's just completely taken away the voice the the leadership capacity and the gifting that god's given women to be used in the church um i don't know if i explained that well and i could go on and on about that that's a huge concept and even shocking to some people but the old testament is incredibly valuable and it's inspired but we are no longer under that covenant there is not a single old testament promise that directly relates to you or i any longer we're not even under the the ten commandments any longer like i i was reading recently where like the fight shouldn't be to get the ten commandments up in courtrooms it should be the sermon on the mount because all of that was replaced now with the life of jesus the new ethic and command of jesus to love others the way that i've loved you and then all the new testament is now explaining how that command of love god love others how it works out and plays out in everyday life including relationships between male and female and including how that should work in regard to a ministry and church context so i don't know if any of that was clear but that would be kind of the backdrop that i would want to set up let me ask you a question because this is what i grew up believing honestly very recently until coming to center point um i was always growing up to believe like as a woman my job was more supportive um not that i couldn't do things but you know like you're like, you're just different. I can't do everything that a guy can do. Um, so I was basically like, grew up to be the complementarism of the two genders. Like, okay, the female's role is to support the guy. Like we have our own special qualities and they have their own special things. But, you know, I find out later, like, so how do you respond to that? Because yeah. I feel like it's very divisive and it's very limiting to a woman um, who wants to lead and has a desire to lead. So what is your response to um, people who teach in the church that, you know, that we just compliment each other and that's it? 
Okay, in a sense, we do. I, I mean, I would agree with that. But I, as far as the theology, I would differ, you know, uh, somewhat with, I think, what you would call complementary theology. Um, or, or, yeah, the quote I was looking for, there was an article written by Fuller, somebody at Fuller Seminary, and makes this statement. I think it describes it well. It says, this, the point is not the obliteration of God's created differences between male and female, but that um, sexual differentiation does not determine the participation in Christ's church for persons created in the image of God. So yes, we're wired differently and, um, and it doesn't exclude those differences. And in fact, the beauty of that, like of, of beauty and ethnicity and race and gender and all of that. But what I, I would say is this is a lot of that even comes out of misinterpretation of what Paul writes in Ephesians where we love to, to grab out that verse of wives submit to your husbands. Yes. In the original Greek, submit was not even in that verse, which if you remove it, it's, it's weird because it's, it plays something like um, wives to your husbands. Uh, yeah, I have to read the verse, but it, like, and the reason is because that, that verb is inferred from the previous verse or the verse right up, the verses right above it, which we tend to never read in context. And when Paul is writing it, it is so shocking because he says, before he gets to that part, he says, hey, I want you to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, meaning this goes both ways. And it's so clear in that context. And then even raises the standard for men to go, hey, man, I want you to love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Mm -hmm. In essence, I want you to... I want you to lay down your life and to put it in more practical terms, I want you to constantly work to put her second or you first. And that's what we want to do us first, her second. (laughs) See, it's so ingrained uh, to put her first and yourself second. So literally that's what Christ has done for you. I want you to do that for her. But the whole context is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And really it's like, Hey men, you go first and do what Christ has done for you. You lay down your life, your wants, your desires, your expectations for the sake of your wife. So a lot of that theology is pulled out of a couple verses in the New Testament. And much of it is because we have lifted some of the Old Testament passages and we're trying to create this conglomeration that does not work any longer. That has been obliterated. Christ ended that. I could spend a lot of time talking to you about that. Now we have a new covenant and a new ethic. And Jesus says, this is the way forward. And it was shocking in that culture where women were really property. They were commodities. They were viewed as less than full people in a lot of ways. They couldn't be witnesses in court because they were unreliable. They couldn't get an education. They were uneducated. And here Christ is going, no, actually, you guys are on equal ground. That's why that verse you mentioned earlier is so huge. There's not slave or free greek or jew male female that idea of equality of egalitarianism was so massive and then he comes along and says oh and you've got to submit to women out of reverence for christ that was shocking in the first century then last thing i'll say when the whole idea where they're talking about divorce hey can we just divorce are they come to jesus with a question one day can we divorce our wives for any and every reason was basically the question because that's what they did in that culture women had no say any kind of sexual whatever was the women was always at fault. Um, they you could just give her a certificate of divorce. She'd have to go her way. Uh, that's the power that men had in that culture, and um, and Jesus changes the whole standard about how to relate with women and the idea of of divorce and and what he calls them to in terms of how they. Hey, I want you to love your again that whole idea. I want you to love your wife the way Christ has loved the church. And again, the tuss is like, oh yeah, that's that makes sense to them. I was like, are you serious? We have to. We have to love her. Like we have to, no, we, you know, they're property. They're, that's how they thought in the first century. And so I say all that to say what Jesus introduced was shocking and we're still trying to catch up with it. And the problem is we can consistently reach back in and, and take an Old Testament verse and try to use it as the lens for how we take a couple verses out of context in the New Testament. So yeah. does that make sense? No, it definitely does. Okay. Um, and my, my next question for you would be like, how do you respond to, because I have no doubts about it, you know, at center point, your wife is our worship and creative arts pastor on staff. So I have no doubts that you've probably received like backlash, something about the pastoral role, because, you know, they talk about shepherds a lot in the past. So like, what is, what do you hear about that? What kind, what would you say to people who come to you with their concerns with that? How do you address those conversations? Yeah, that's a good question. So first thing I would say is, is I get it. Like I, 
I've, um, I've changed my view on this. Like I started pastoring with one view and then I, I changed my view after study and research. And then that, it doesn't scare me to do that. Like I, like I mentioned in a message Sunday, um, God never changed. Jesus never changes. The gospel never changes the good news of what Jesus has done and his death and resurrection. But we change all the time. Like Paul talks about, like we see in part now, eventually we're going to see in full, which means there's constantly things I don't know. There's constantly parts of my worldview that are not accurate. So I say all that to say, number one, there's things that change about like how I see scripture and the more I've spent years studying it. The second thing I would say though is I think there should be humility in that to go like, I get other people that disagree. I've been on the other side of it. So I understand that. So I'm not, this is not one of those things I would even die for. It's just like, I would die for the fact that I believe Jesus rose from the grave. I don't have any doubt about that historical evidence of one, but this stuff, here's what I believe scripture teaches clearly as I've really looked at it, researched it, but I understand there's differing views. So all that is the context. Um, a couple things, like, I think, just to talk about women in terms of ministry real quick. And then I, in a few minutes, I want to deal with two specific verses or two specific areas of scripture that are almost the sole basis for why people say women cannot preach and lead in the church. It's, it's, there's really two passages where we um, make that argument, which is really, really dangerous to create any kind of theology around a couple verses. But the thing that I would say is when you see Jesus show up on the scene, um, just first kind of like maybe an anecdotal level, there's so much evidence about how he changed um, the way culture would view women, but then how women would have a massive part in this new movement um, called the church, like right from the beginning. In fact, let me just share this. Jo- Josephus was an historian in the first century. This gives you a little idea when Jesus showed up how women were viewed, because I would make the argument 2000 years later, the way we view women, which is we haven't arrived in any area of our society, but it's changed because of Jesus. Because Josephus said this, um, a first century historian, the women says the law um, is in all things inferior to the man, let her accordingly be submissive. And then this other historian of the time said this, better is the wickedness of a man than a woman, a woman who does good. So that'll like give you an idea of how they viewed women in the first century. Then Jesus shows up and over and over again affirms like the um, the worth of women, yes. the fact that they're equal. Um, again, all those shocking statements that we looked about uh, looked at already. He goes back and quotes Genesis and talks about the whole one flesh idea that that husband and wife are one flesh; they're equal. Um, over and over again, you look in the New Testament just to bring a couple of these out. Like he moves in the direction of the, the sinful woman who's anointing him with oil and he shocks all of the religious leaders. I think we have to be really, really careful to not just dismiss those things and realize Jesus is making a very um, weighty point in elevating those stories and even those stories being documented. The other big one is the Samaritan woman where she, there are gender and racial overtones to that, but she's like, why, why would you even talk to me? Um, the woman at the, the Samaritan woman at the well, um, Mary and Martha being a huge part of his inner circle. Um, and then, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I love it. You said that I think people neglect, like, it just seems like something, oh, that just casually happened. No, Jesus knew what he was doing in every single one of those instances. Like, he's like, it doesn't like, it's not a coincidence that all these people were women. Um, he made a, made a strong point and he knew that this would be documented and talked yeah. about 2000 years later so yeah. i love that you pointed that out because i feel like sometimes people just brush past those verses and don't take the moment to think yeah. about what he was doing in that moment well and i think part of the reason we brush past them is again because we were viewing it all through the lens of what jesus introduced first century culture when it was happening again i, I keep saying this but the shock value was was much greater um the fact that women were the first to an empty tomb we talk about this a lot every easter like that was crazy. You wouldn't make that up unless it actually happened because women weren't considered reliable witnesses in court. So you wouldn't use that as a defense for a new movement and that somebody actually rose from the grave. Women were the first there. Women were huge supporters of Jesus ministry. Like you look all throughout the new Testament, it speaks of women being a part of his committed disciples. Um, there there's evidence that they funded a great portion of um, Jesus ministry. So, I mean, over and over again, like the, um, the evidence for 
uh, women. And then you could go on and on. I give you a bunch of other um, examples. But the book of Acts is a big one. Uh, because if you go to the book of Acts, it's, it's basically the 30-year history of the start of the church. So it's Jesus dies. You know, he's resurrected. He's about to ascend into heaven. I'm going to start this new movement. Okay, guys, go get it done. He ascends into heaven. And so Acts is the church is just getting started weeks after Jesus is crucified. And all throughout Acts, and I would encourage you to read this for yourself if you're listening or watching, it's full of women who were the uh, catalysts in helping start um, this new movement as it spread outside of Jerusalem. They're all over the place. And over and over again, what's really interesting is it talks about they're inhabited with the Holy Spirit the same way that everybody else is, all the males are. Um, they're a part of prophecy. They're a part of the foundational development of the church. And there's no distinctions that are made. So just read Acts. You'll see that all throughout it. Um, second, it's a couple other things I'll bring out real quick, yeah. is uh, the Philippian church. It started Acts 16. The involvement in, of women in that was huge. They talk about a place of prayer where these women were gathered. Most likely that was, that was part of the synagogue and Lydia led it. I mean, Lydia was um, a leader in the synagogue there that actually helped launch this church. So from everything we know, that church in Philippi was started and led by women, which yeah. is, is really interesting. That's Acts 16. Um, Priscilla was one of the huge, her husband Aquila, unfortunate names, but they instructed Apollos, who was one of the noted teachers in the church, and um, they were a big part of actually instructing him, teaching him. Priscilla was a huge part of that. Acts is really clear on that. Um, so like Galatians 3.28, Acts, um, over and over again, you see that last one I keep saying, last one I'll give is uh, in Romans, where Paul talks about four women that were a huge part of uh, what he refers to as gospel ministry. So, I mean, just over and over again, just in relation to the church, you see the start of the, of the church and women are everywhere in terms of leading and being the catalyst for getting it started. Again, there's no distinction that's made. They're a part of, Paul refers to it as um, the special work of the Lord. I mean, they're, they're doing everything that everybody else is doing uh, in getting that thing rolling. So I think that there's a ton of anecdotal evidence just as you look at the launch of the church. So. Yeah. Yeah, and I think an, a lot of what I hear, too, from just a slight, like, a caveat to the other side, is, like, I heard this so much growing up, too, that people were like, well, scientifically, men can't understand the women as well as they understand other men, and so that's why, like, even, like, this is, I still think it's crazy to think, like, I mean, I mean, outside of center point, anyways, like in the last five years, it's been a big deal to allow women to lead more songs during worship. Like when I first started doing worship music, I remember distinctly, it was like, you could have one woman on stage, she would sing maybe one song. And like, that was it. She wasn't allowed to sing one one song. And it wasn't just like where I was it's everywhere. Like I was like, it was in the last few yeah. years, I do see that changing. But it's, it's interesting, like, I feel like sometimes people like pull things in order to like fit their agenda. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's crazy how it's all, it, it is changing for the better, I think in the last few years, but I think a lot of people still try to pigeonhole to that fact that they think if a woman teaches, the guy's not going to learn anything, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and you know, and I get, there's a lot of, um, depending on your denominational background or, you know, whatever, it's not always denominational lines, but um, you know, a lot of, a lot grew up with, um, that kind of teaching. And the thing that I would keep coming back to is there's, there's a lot of teaching inadvertently. And I, I people are tired of hearing me say this, but where we just, we've intermingled what really is the Jewish scriptures, the old Testament with the new Testament teaching of Jesus. And, and we've created a lot of confusing arguments. And mm -hmm. honestly, it's, it's one of the reasons that we've, um, I don't want to go too far into this, but, uh, a lot of how we've treated people, a lot of how we've operated, just forget the whole like role of women, just in, in general, in society, how we've treated different groups is because we're taking some of this Old Testament mindset and this, this idea of holiness that we don't quite understand in terms of what Jesus introduced in the New Testament. And we're using that as fuel to um, uh, marginalize, to be angry at sin, um, rather than understanding the gospel of God's wrath being poured out on the cross. And now this, again, this new net, new ethic of, of God's grace being poured out and the fact that we're to love others the way God has loved us. And now that we're, we're under a 
a new law that's written on our heart with the Holy Spirit inside of us. Like now we're portable temples wherever we go. And it just, th- that, that is so huge because it, it really does affect how we see everything and how we treat everybody. And so, um, yeah. So there's, go ahead. Do you have another? I have like one yeah, more question. <laughs> you what? I have one more question if you're. No, no, keep going. Keep going. So this one's like a little more open-ended question, but um, just because it's not just me, I know I could name tons of women who I know who tried stepping up in the church and then have been denied from all over the place, all different backgrounds, all different denominations. Like you said, it's not like one denomination or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, what, what do you think needs to be done to repair those relationships to like help like help mend it and help women feel valued like in the 21st century church like what do we do how can we yeah. make it better man well I, like it's, it's twofold because i think part of it is i mean it depends on what they're being excluded from but i, I think the first thing is to reevaluate what, what we're teaching mm-hmm. about women and leadership and and so forth but i think the other thing is this is um it comes back to what we're talking about it, it, if the the major command is hey, the vertical relationship with God is going to be determined by the horizontal now. That's New Testament theology, that if you say you love God, you're going to love your brother, you're going to love your sister. You're, so, uh, you know, what the verse that we even looked at this last weekend that Paul writes of carrying one another's burden. So it should influence how we interact um, and speak to and value anybody. And, and I would say this, like, if someone feels marginalized then we should take that seriously that's what it means to carry one of those burdens and so in the church if there's groups of people that feel marginalized whether that is by a race class ethnicity whether that's women then they should take that seriously there should be a humility to go man i've been called to love you the way that christ has loved me i've been called to um to carry your burdens i've been called to listen to you and so I think that's a lot of it right there. Like if we're really living that out, then the way we approach conversations, the way we deal with people, with women, whoever it is, there's just going to be a level of humility in that. There's going to be a level of grace. There's going to be a level of mercy. And um, I think just that would start to change things in our churches. So I think it is twofold because I think there's a theological issue where there's some things where I think we just need to reevaluate. But the the other part of it is even if we differ I don't know. I think if you do that, what we we're just talking about, um, it, it changes things. But the reality is so much of the church has operated in pharisaical arrogance. And, you know, we, and we, Jesus is, is grace and truth, but we tend to lean a lot on the truth side and there's not a lot of grace. Um, and so there's not a lot of empathy. There's not a lot of carrying other people's burdens. And so we, we look a lot and feel a lot like modern day Pharisees and um, like it or not, people can get angry about me making that statement. That's how many people view the church today. And whether you think it's true or not, that's how they feel. Mm-hmm. That's so true. So I think, yeah, like you're saying, it is kind of funny how like beyond just gender, this replies to so much of like, you see like the church being divided in this where like you said, they are relying more on the old covenant than the new covenant and it's it's crazy to think about it spreads it touches so much of what the church deals with not just this but you know everything like the racial injustices that we've seen within the churches so it is like i think it's kind of funny because this same topic could apply to the message you gave this last sunday about proximity versus friendship and everything included with that message it it is like all it starts with you you know, and works your way out, not you yeah. specifically, but every, yeah. but every it does. Day. It starts with, yeah, no, absolutely. That's really well, and that's a, well, let's come back maybe the podcast just around that because that is such a huge idea. That I don't know if I'm even doing it justice or people will, because even when I'm talking about that, there's a lot of argument around that because um, we, we have this, I don't know, we, we have this uh, skewed view of when Jesus introduced a new covenant, um, that somehow we're diminishing the old covenant by saying it's obsolete and expired. Um, but it is like Jesus himself said that Paul said that I could point to scripture after scripture still inspired, but 
it's not for us any longer. That was for Israel. That was the history of God getting us ready. So yeah, it, it relates to everything. Um, so that's a huge topic. And so one other thing I want to deal with though, because if people are listening or watching this, most people who, a lot of people hold to a view they don't even know why they hold to. Yeah. But then there's others that there are a couple like proof texts in the New Testament, like, ha, got you. Like there's a couple texts that you haven't looked at in the New Testament that make it really clear that women shouldn't preach, lead. So, so just real quick, and I can't do these justice, but there are two in particular um, in 1 Corinthians, and then the other one that I'll deal with in just a second. But in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, and you can go, uh, maybe I'll look it up, but you can go look this up for yourself. But one of the big ones is where Paul starts talking about head coverings for women. And number one, you have to read um, within cultural context, understand what is cultural and what is a mandate for 21st century. But he makes a really strong and explicit um, assertion in 1 Corinthians 11 and 12 about the mutuality of men and women, which is really important because we take verses out of 1 Corinthians 11 and we take them completely out of context. So it's really important. Paul is setting up this mutuality between men and women in this discussion about um, head coverings that we often misunderstand. And in the discussion, you look at, he, he and clearly um, assumes that women as well as men will engage in prayer and prophecy. And so this whole idea about head coverings was in the context of prayer and prophecy. And the fact that it, in Paul's writing in this particular letter, he talks about the fact that it was the highest gift of the church because it was for edification, it was for encouragement, um, comfort in the church. And so because of that, it required authority. It required teaching to be able to do that. And so he was putting men and women on equal plane to go, like women have been called into this as well. And that's going to require authority. It's going to require teaching because this is a major gift that's been given to the church. And then he, he concludes the first part of his discussion on head, head coverings by stating that women ought to have authority um, on their own heads or over their own heads. And usually that authority word, I'm probably getting too deep, is misinterpreted. But in the original Greek, it has the idea of active um, authority or the active exercise of authority. And in that culture, that head covering um, was this denotion of authority. And so the whole reason that Paul's talking about this idea was to make clear that men and women had this mutuality in terms of leadership, that they had both been given the ability to exercise this gift in public, in the church, prayer and prophecy, and that women, uh, because of the culture of that day, which Jesus, the disciples, they always worked within the context of culture, always. That's another really important thing. And so he's, he's making the point that, that women... Um, ought to exercise this authority, which had to do with this whole idea of a covering or a veil or whatever. And um, and then after that, he goes on to mention 12 women by name who are co-workers with him in gospel ministry. And so um, that's one of the uh, passages that we love to take out of context. But the, the common terminology, as you look at those verses, there was no distinction in roles or functions between men and women in ministry so that's the bottom line i'd love for people to go back and read those verses in that context that's so good yeah it's like when who decided you know these these limitations for women it's like obviously like you obviously didn't pull it from the bible if you like read the context yeah which is written it is interesting like because i hear every you know church I, like every church has like their own like, limitations it feels like and it's like where do well, you draw the line you know yeah, because a lot of times what you have to do, so there again, there's about two, um, because First uh, Corinthians 14 is the other big passage where, where it talks about, um, in fact, maybe I'll just read it in a second, but that, that's a big one we pull out. But generally what you have to do is reach back into the Old Testament and what happened after the fall, and you take those verses and then you superimpose them on, on a couple of verses in the New Testament, and that makes your theology. Um, <laughs> But, but it's what I said, that's why interpreting pre-fall, post-fall, prescriptive, descriptive is really, really important. Um, otherwise, it can jack everything up for you in terms of like taking this stuff and then making it your lens for the New Testament. The other thing is this, uh, it's called the law of perpiscuity. Anytime you take one or two verses out of context and create a theology around that, like that's recipe to go off the rail. So that was, 
that was the thing for me even in studying this and again i understand people have different views around this and i respect yeah. that I, I completely understand that and there's room for debate i i, I get that but one of the things you have to, to realize if you really take a hard look at the new testament which again is what you have to do the new testament there's a couple verses and um if you really look at the context of those verses it's a reach and you really have to reach, like I said, back into the Old Testament be able to be able to make that argument. So I think that's a lot of what happens, even with the passage that I just looked at. Um, let me get to this one real quick. I'm gonna, um, I'm actually gonna look it up and I won't take too much time, but I have to get to these verses because these are the like the big, like this is what everybody points to. First Corinthians 14. Uh, 34 and 35 oh, yes. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about like this is the this is the big one this has been um, to me so many times uh, women should remain silent in churches they are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says if they want to inquire about something they should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church um there's several different and, and again like i get that you read that and you're like oh wow that's that's pretty clear um <laughs> and so the point i'm trying to make is if you hold to that and i don't change your mind in the next minute that's fine the thing that you should just realize is the basis for why we don't allow women to preach teach and lead is almost exclusively based on these two verses and so i just it just recognizing that i think is important because it always makes me a little nervous to build something off of two verses in the scripture. Um, there's a couple others I'll point to in a second that we also use, but these, these are the big ones. So there's a couple different interpretations. Some will say this is speaking to tongues. Um, others will talk about several, several different other things that um, it's describing. So I'm not going to deal with all those different arguments. The thing I would say is this, first of all, in context, this has to be a specific point in time and incident in the life of the church because paul has already made clear that this is not his mandate for women and i would encourage you to read all of paul's letters i know that's asking a lot because that <laughs> is very clear that is undeniable so that helps you interpret this to know what paul is um, not saying because he's already made it clear about that mutuality and relationship about how women and men should function um, in the church about how they had helped him in gospel ministry. I mean, all that stuff that you can look at. So it is very, very clear. Teaching of Apollos, Lydia. I mean, Paul's made that abundantly clear um, that his, his role or the mandate is not for women to be silent in the church. I think the best interpretation of these verses, and let me just say this, when Paul is writing in, in the epistles, they are writing specific letters to specific churches addressing specific issues. So that's really, really important. A lot of it is applicable to us, obviously, but there are specific, I mean, even in Corinth, they're dealing with specific issues, even around sexuality and some craziness that was happening that Paul writes specifically to church because that's what they were going through. So that's really important to understand. Um, so I, I think one of the best ways to understand this is you look at all of Paul's writings was the fact that when they met together as a church it was for mutual edification it was to edify the body of christ right. in another passage he talks about tongues and he talks about the fact of hey you guys like you need to be careful how you practice this in the gathering because outsiders are coming in and you guys just look crazy and like this is for edification so you need to be careful about that so there's several places throughout the new testament where he talks about this in regard to differing things in this particular case what you have to understand is women were uneducated. This, this will show you the, the archaic nature of their culture. Like they're still just starting to turn the tide of what Jesus has introduced. But women are still second-class citizens, though it's changing with the church. It's what women finally are finding a place in the first century church, but they're uneducated. Um, they're not taught. They don't have the same level of access that men have. So they're sitting in church services without that same level of education and access, and in this particular incident, you look at everything that Paul writes in this context, they're asking all kinds of questions about theology and this and that, they're just off the rails. And it doesn't have anything to do specifically with gender, but it ends up being um, centering around women because the fact that women in that church were uneducated, they didn't have the same access to men, and so they were completely basically behind the eight ball 
of we don't understand what's going on. We have a ton of questions. And because of that, there wasn't mutual edification in the church. It was chaotic. And over and over again, the Testament warns about chaos in the church and like the fact that like we want it to be helpful. We want it to build each other up. And so hence he makes the statement of like, like you need to work some of this out offline. Like you need before and some of it was because he talks about it previously potentially some crazy theology and some stuff that was just off the rails and so um i i think and let me i'll read a, a quote from uh, another article from fuller that i thought explains this well it says the view that seems best to understand the speaking prohibited here to women to refer only to disruptive questions that wives usually uneducated because of the culture were asking their husbands this corresponds precisely with Paul's re uh, the resolution Paul offers in 1 Corinthians. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home because of the nature of what was going on in the church. Right. Such, such disruptive questioning was also considered a disgrace in Paul's day in which it was widely believed it was morally um, indiscreet for any wife to say anything on any subject in public. This view of disruptive questioning also fits well with the specific context in which Paul is concerned about the appropriateness and order which permit genuine edification. Thus, there are actually three injunctions to silence, although many biblical translations use silent only in 1 Corinthians 14, 13. And so later he goes on to describe the fact that we only um, generally use silence in terms of just our speech, but all throughout you see that word used in terms of disruption, um, being out of order, chaos, and so he's not referring so much to, I don't want you to say anything, but to the chaos, yeah. the disorder, the, we're not getting anything out of this. Basically, it's like, if you've ever been to a community group that ends up like that, where it's just chaos, everybody's asking all all questions, you can't ever get to the point, and it's like, why did I show up for this tonight? That's basically what was happening, and what Paul was warning against, and he was warning against it, according to their first century culture and the fact that they're they're still turning the tide in terms of how they viewed women in the church but you look at everything else paul writes about and um it's very clear law of purpose skewed he don't take any verses out of context without without context he wasn't saying for all times women need to be silent and not have a role in the church because yeah. he already de debunked that with everything else that he wrote that's so, so yeah. i don't know if that helps or is that if that's clear um so um there's one more that i was going to deal with um in uh first timothy can i just do that last one real quick okay did you have anything to add to that or or can i just jump to that no i just i think it is like you know that's the number one thing you got to learn about when you're really pulling scriptures is context is everything and you know you're right it's like almost all these letters that paul wrote you need to examine why he's writing to them what was going on in that church at that time? Like, yeah. I think, is there's so many scriptures you see stitched even like on pillows that you're like, okay, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you understand why that was written? No, okay. Like, yeah, yeah. It's a lot more than just this, but for some reason, this gets ignored, I think, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, that That's, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, and, Again, I may be getting too deep into like Bible study mode, but this is the last one because I know this is another verse that's referred to a lot. So I'll just deal with it. And well, I will say before you read it, I think it's yeah. perfect that you are referencing scripture because a lot of people use these same scriptures for reasons what like their whole like you said theology is built off of these scriptures. So the only yes. reason to get it better is to talk about those scriptures and talk about what they mean. So yeah. I, I don't think you're doing too much at all because. Okay. Like, to examine Try not to get bogged down. the conclusions that we got to yeah you know? so. well the, the other big one that we refer to is uh first timothy 2 11 and 12 um so you'll probably record you know what i'm talking about with those <laughs> verses uh, i grew up in the church i told you those are the two passages that everybody points to again you can hold this view i completely respect that but just realize it's basically for, comes from these two passages in the new testament and so the second one is this and again, I get it. When you read it at face value, it's like, well, that seems pretty clear where it says First uh, Timothy 2.11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Um, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent, um, you know, and it goes on from there. And so uh, so First Timothy 2.11 and 12 um, 
and I'm going to quote an article again because I think it states this well. Um, it should also be observed that 1 Timothy 2, 11, 12 is a general prohibition on teaching and authority um, exercised by women. It is not directed to only a certain level of person, such as ordained um, or non-ordained or pastors or missionaries. Further, it is not limited to only certain styles of teaching, like preaching, um, as distinct from sharing or seminary teaching or writing theology, theological books. In other words, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 were a transcultural, um, it, or if 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 were a transcultural absolute prohibition on women teaching and exercising authority in the church, then it pro prohibits all such activity. So that's really important. So if, if that's uh, and again, most will use that verse as the reasoning for why women shouldn't preach, teach. But if you hold to that, then you got to go all the way. You can't stop halfway and kind of create. So that means that women cannot exercise any kind of authority and prohibits all such activity. Now, the only problem with that is most people who refer to this verse do not hold to that at that extreme. So they end up somewhere in the middle, but you can't do that. Yeah. Like it's either all or nothing with this verse if you want to be intellectually um, honest. So in um, 11 and 12, it's, so the word is in quietness, and then verse 12, it is silent. Those, those two words are about actually both identical in the Greek. So quietness and silent, exact same words. The same term is actually used by Paul in 2 Thessalonians, um, which the NIV actually translates as settle down, um, is, the, is how NIV interprets it. So the point is that this term, which is often, it's kind of what I was saying before, is often interpreted as verbal silence, because when we hear those words, that's what we think of, like, be quiet, don't say anything, don't audibly, you know, whatever. Um, but it's, it's better un, in, uh, to understand as an indication of proper order, acceptance, or normal practice. So it's not so much just verbal silence, it has to do with manner, conduct, all that stuff. And so the term translated to have authority occurs only here in the New Testament. It was rarely used in any of the Greek language, which is super important again in context. So it's not usually a word for um, positive uh, active authority. Right. Um, rather, like usually it's used as a negative term, which refers to like the usurpation or the abuse of authority. So it's that any other time that you see it's used, that's how you see it used. Thus, the prohibition in 2, 11, and 12, like what I just read, is against some kind of abusive activity. So abuse of authority, abuse of, of uh, influence, of uh, something in that context, but not against the appropriate exercise of teaching and authority in the church. And this goes back to what I said a minute ago. You have to understand that these were written to specific people, specific churches, much of it is applicable to us, but it was dealing with very specific issues, and you have to interpret it within the context of everything that's been said in the New Testament, right. because we do the same thing with uh, the theology of salvation, where, we, where there'll be people that will pick out a couple verses where it seems clear, well, I think you can lose your salvation. Look what it says here. I, I mean, I won't go into all of that, but in isolation, maybe. But then you look at the context of all of the New Testament, and the, the evidence is overwhelming. There's no argument to be had. I think the same is true here. Yes, you can pull out about four verses, two different passages, really just two passages. But if you recognize the whole context and the fact that these were, these were written to specific churches and individuals, it helps with context. And I think it's very clear if you look at the Greek words in terms of what this, what remains silent, really meant which was not verbal and the fact that the greek term has to do with abuse of power i think this is a specific incident around the abuse of authority around probably misplaced theology that was had the potential to lead people off the rails where he's going you can't do this um in the church and you've got to remain silent and and this can't um continue but um because the only other way to, to i think to come up with a different argument is again you've got to pull out some other verses and try to use those as the lens yeah. through which to interpret it so yeah. no, that's that's, a, that's how i would um that's how i would talk about first timothy and then the verse in first corinthians that often we like to point to so that's really good
Yeah, and I think it's important, like like I said in the beginning, it's like it's just a lot of churches will also say, you know, and same thing with like it's crazy. I don't mean to keep bringing it up, but there's the racial injustice that we've seen too. It's funny how the two things can be a little similar because it's the same thing. Churches will say, "Oh, I like, I value every everybody, no matter race, gender, whatever." But then you look at you look at their leadership, you look at their congregation, you look at like how it's structured, and you're like, "Well, the facts of, your, of it say different," and that's why people don't feel comfortable in your church. You know, so I'm like really grateful that at Centerpoint, you, you make it a priority um, and you guys work really hard to make sure that, you know, everybody, all the marginalized, like I think I told you once, I was like, sometimes I feel like Centerpoint is the island for misfit toys because, like, yeah, because we have like so many different marginalized groups and most people come from like a hurt background to churches as well. So yeah. I just love that Centerpoint makes it a priority to honor women, honor all people of color, and we don't hold back from any of that. So I love that we're having this conversation. That's, I love that you said that. That's, I, that's such a great statement. And the thing I guess I would say is like culture is an unspoken language. You yes. feel culture. So you can use all the words in the world. It, like it's why you can have churches that they quote all the same verses. Yeah. Um, but they feel completely different because you can say one thing, but the culture that you actually create, which is how you actually treat people, um, how you actually interact with people. That's what says everything. Um, like that's what was so brilliant and attractive about Jesus is he created some kind of culture where people who are nothing like him, like to be around him and he liked them. And so he had this like island of mis misfits. Every time he spoke and communicated, there were people from every kind of background all there. And the only thing they had in common was Jesus because of the culture that he created. So I would say, because I think that's a good ending point. Mm -hmm. I think no matter what you believe around this, um, you have to go back to what Jesus said in the upper room, that if you guys forget everything else, I want you to love others the way I've loved you. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge uh, the same, I think, in regard to race is true of women, that there's been a long history in the church where we haven't had a great track record. And um, my wife even grew up in some environments where um, they used all the same verses, but women were not treated well. And um, you would give lip service to it, but a lot of times it felt demeaning and the whole use of, you know, women just need to submit was used to kind of condescend to and kind of you follow along behind me and weren't given a real authority and leadership um, in the church and in ministry. And I just think that's wrong. That's sin. So you don't have to hold to women can preach and teach. You may have a different theological understanding, but if you're creating a culture where people and women feel marginalized, um, feel um, like they aren't given a voice, um, maybe feel condescended to, then that's a, that's a problem. Yeah. And I think it is in direct contradiction to what Jesus said that the church should be known for. And so that's the thing I'm most passionate about. Yeah. The rest of it, you can argue about that. <laughs> but where I get really um, a lot of angst is where the church has, um, has marginalized certain people. And I think for a long time has, uh, there's you know even recent instances over the last six months where Christian leaders have talked down to women and said things that are absolutely um it, it's just wrong it's sinful and there there's no excuse for it and so that that shouldn't be um have any part in the church so that's my first thing no matter where you stand but then secondly like i think we got to take a look um where we pulled out some verses and that's kind of been our proof text for whatever is go back and look at those and that's what i encourage people to do look at the new testament look at what paul actually wrote and um figure out where you land but as a church we land on think the evidence is overwhelming in the New Testament and then what Jesus even created originally in the Garden of Eden that um, within a church context yes men and women have distinctive roles God's created them unique but equal but women have been given a voice to preach teach lead in the church and so our church culture reflects that I have a bunch of really strong women on my staff including you and who are given um, authority and leadership and I think that's what the church is called to do so Anyway, I talked a lot. I don't know if I made sense of any of those verses. I probably went way too deep with that. So if people got questions, they can shoot them our way. Yes, absolutely. You should do okay. series on it too. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll do that one of these days.
No, it was very informative. Even I learned a thing or two, and I've been very passionate about this subject. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Well, hey, thanks for doing this with me and jumping in at the last yeah, minute. Yeah, fun. Anytime. <laughs> okay. All right, see ya. Thanks for watching and listening. Later. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.